Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garden. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. We are coming to you from STAT's global headquarters here in Boston, Massachusetts. It's Thursday, May 3rd, and here's what's on the docket this week. The doors just opened for early stage biotech companies to list on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Healthcare investor Brad Longcar joins us to discuss this and much more going on in China's biopharma sector. Ironwood Pharmaceuticals is splitting into two after pressure from an activist investor. We'll talk about this and other ongoing activist campaigns in healthcare. Bill Gates is offering $12 million to try to spur progress toward the holy grail of flu research. Stats' Helen Branswell joins us to talk about what it was like to interview him. And finally, this would not be a real podcast if we didn't find room for true crime. We'll talk about the Golden State Killer case and its implications for genetic privacy. But first, a word from our sponsor. At Takeda, we work tirelessly every day to serve the needs of our patients. We aim to earn the trust of society and our customers through our integrity, fairness, honesty, and perseverance. We strive to be best in class and won't stop until we help create better health and a brighter future for people around the world. Learn more by visiting us at Takeda.com. So it's conventional wisdom that China is on the rise, and some of the most fascinating progress is happening in the country's biopharma sector, which is very quickly shedding its reputation for emphasizing copycat drugs over actual innovation. And joining us to talk about that is Brad Longcar, who's one of the industry's most knowledgeable investors when it comes to Chinese biotech. Last month, in fact, Brad started a stock market index. It's the first one of its kind. And the idea is to quantify and track the performance of China's biopharma industry. Brad, thanks for coming here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So Brad, you recently spent some time in China. What did you learn being on the ground there that might not be apparent from afar? I think the biggest thing is this is, a, I think, a blind spot for most US-based investors and other people in our industry. You know, China hasn't necessarily been at the forefront of bi biotech in the past, but that's changing rapidly. There's a few elements that are coming together that um, might make it able for them to have really a first-class biotech sector for the, the very first time. And I think it's just the beginning of that. And so it's just kind of fun to be on the ground and see these things coming together and meet with the people that were making it happen. And what's changed to make this renaissance possible? Well, there's a handful of things. One of the most important is that the government there is strongly supporting this. They have a plan called Made in China 2025, where they're trying to promote investment in innovative sectors. And pharmaceuticals is one of those sectors that they've singled out that they want to support and really have a first-class homegrown industry by that time. So that's one thing. Another thing is that there's been a lot of important reforms at their version of the FDA, the CFDA. You know, I know, especially from an investor standpoint, in the past, we've always had questions about the reliability of data and just the entire regulatory pathway wasn't um, very understandable. And they're trying to bring their FDA up to the standards of ours. They're using ours as the model for many things. And so that's improving dramatically in a good way. One sign of the times is just this week, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange has decided to allow for the very first time applications for new listings from biotech companies that don't have any revenue, which used to be a thing you couldn't do there. Brad, how do you think that might affect the global market for biotech companies? 
Well, first of all, there's going to be a big boom of listings. We already know of about a dozen companies that have been pretty publicly vocal about saying they want to do this right away. And over the coming years, you could literally see dozens more, if not like a hundred. So they're going to go through a boom of listings. But this is not just about are we listing on NASDAQ or listing on Hong Kong. This is going to affect their entire biotech culture because it's going to create a whole ecosystem and a whole environment of investing in biotech for the first time. And there are things that they don't have there that we do here that will spring up from that. So they have a great VC community, for example, but uh, they don't have a lot of institutional investors that invest in biotech. They don't really have a big analyst community. Um, and all of those things will eventually happen. And this is going to be the spark um, that makes it happen. And so with all of those elements coming together, this is kind of like the, the ribbon on top that I, I think brings them all together and will impact everyone, not just the public markets, but it'll, it'll give them like a biotech culture for the first time. And this is just the very beginning of that. And it will be exciting to watch all of that unfold. So one challenge that I've found reporting on China's biopharma sector is it can be really hard to get solid facts and information. You know, government agencies tend not to return emails and phone calls. A lot of the news is conveyed via the state news agencies. So curious, Brad, do you have any tips for how people in the states can stay abreast of what's going on in Chinese biopharma? Yeah, so there's two things um, that I found. So first of all, there's starting to be uh, media organizations that focus on that sector that are springing up in that region. So one that actually recently joined Twitter is called FarmCube, so I would check that out. And another thing I would try to get involved in, the number one thing I learned that's important for a, a visitor to China, and especially a business visitor, they have a social media platform there called WeChat that's kind of like a combination of all of ours, like Facebook, Twitter, everything combined. And it's a business tool. Like you won't share business cards with people. You'll connect on WeChat. And a lot of uh, organizations have group chats. So like there are various like pharmaceutical uh, or you know sector uh, group chats. And you'll meet people and you'll get invited to those things. And I found that that's one of the best ways to keep up with what's going on because that's just people in the industry talking about kind of like we have on Twitter here, what interests them and sharing interesting news. So. If you can, especially if you visit, you've got to join WeChat. So if I could pivot back to what could go wrong, um, just picking through some of the things you mentioned, there's not necessarily a sophisticated class of institutional investors. Valuations are super high. And then a thing that kind of goes without saying, which is that drug companies fail all the time. Clinical trials come up negative. The best laid plans of the smartest people often come to naught. Is there a risk that there is a burst in this bubble, if a bubble were to form, or a correction basically that would scare all of the unsophisticated investors away and just tank the China biotech industry in its nascency. Definitely, and that's a real risk. And the important thing is you have to think about this from the long term. And one thing I noticed uh, being on the ground and attending a conference is I think there's a little too much enthusiasm. You know, we uh, this is a very risky business, and even good companies fail all the time because this just a diff drug development is difficult. And I think they are going to go through a lot of starts and stops, uh, just like we do here. And that will be a healthy thing. Like seeing failures and having com companies go through troubles is just the natural learning process of this. So you have to keep a long-term outlook. It is very possible that this will get overheated at the very beginning, especially if they have a flood of new public company listings. 
But I think over the long term, given their government's uh, backing behind this and given the thoughtfulness of their reforms, I think they are putting all the elements together to have a really good, solid, first-class uh, biotech sector over the next five or 10 years. And that's definitely how people should think about this. Great, thanks Brad for joining us. It's my pleasure, thanks a lot for having me. So let's talk about activist investors. Yeah, so we saw the latest example of their influence earlier this week when Ironwood Pharmaceuticals announced a plan to break up into two separate publicly traded companies. And for those of you who aren't familiar, Ironwood is a Cambridge-based biotech. Uh, you probably know them best through the TV ads for their main product, a drug called Linzess that treats irritable bowel syndrome. When I can't go, it's like bricks piling up. I wish I could find some relief. Ask your doctor about Linzess, a once-daily capsule for adults with IBS with constipation or chronic idiopathic constipation. So after the split, one company is going to retain the Ironwood name and they'll continue to own and sell Linzess. Um, the second company, it still doesn't have a name, will be spun off to develop their pipeline assets. So why do that? Well, this, the decision to split Ironwood into two comes after activist healthcare investor Alex Denner of Sarissa Capital. Uh, he started a public campaign late last year to win a board seat uh, in order to press management to change up uh, their business strategy. You know, Denner owns about two and a half percent of Ironwood, and he su he supports the management's decision to split up the company, but he still wants that board seat. Uh, why he's not exactly saying, but. Uh, perhaps it's, it's to steer Ironwood to put itself up for sale. Um, that is an end game uh, strategy that, uh, that Denner has, has used successfully in the past to unlock value in the companies that he targets. So just to back up a little, who is Alex Denner and why does he get to tell the management of Ironwood or any biotech company what to do? So Alex is an interesting guy and probably the best known activist investor in healthcare today. Uh, more on him and his track record in a second. But first, Rebecca, why don't you tell us a little bit about what activist investing really is? Yeah, so as the name implies, an activist investor is an individual or group who acquires a large stake in a publicly traded company. And the goal is to win seats on the board of directors to try to influence the direction of the company. And you know, once on the board, um, the activist investor will press management to change up their strategy, sell off assets, or in some cases, even sell off the entire company. And so the point usually for activists is to get involved with companies that they believe are being woefully mismanaged, right? Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes an activist investor, you know, may push to have the CEO or the entire management team fired or replaced. You know, the best way to think about activist investors is that they are opportunists. Um, you know, they seek out companies which they believe are undervalued. So their off-stated mission is to, and I'm doing the rabbit ear quote thing right now, unlock hidden value. And is Alex Denner any good at, as you put it, unlocking hidden value? So his track record is pretty good if you view it from the perspective of getting what he wants. I think he first became a real known entity in biotech back in 2007. He was managing healthcare investments for Carl Icahn, who is sort of the legendary corporate raider activist investor 
man for whom a medical school is named, uh, Icon had bought a big stake in Biogen, and he had started agitating for change. He publicly criticized the company's CEO at the time, Jim Mullen. He accused them of lying about trying to sell themselves, etc. And eventually, Icon won the board seats he wanted at Biogen, and one of those seats went to his protege, who was Alex Denner. So Alex eventually left Icon to start his own fund, Ceresa Capital, in 2012. And since then, he's tussled with a bunch of biotech companies. Uh, he was involved with Biogen's spinoff of its hemophilia business into a separate company, which was then sold to Sanofi for $12 billion last year. Uh, he also went activist on Ariad Pharmaceuticals and eventually got that company to sell itself to Takeda for $5 billion. So you kind of see where wherever Alex goes, acquisitions seem to follow. You know, which is why Ironwood could be the sort of the next target to be sold off. At the same time, though, we should keep in mind that Denner has also been involved with some real activist clunkers. There was Vivas, there was Igerion. Sometimes it seems like the hidden value is hidden for a reason. And Damien, you wrote a story about Biogen's midlife crisis. Alex, of course, is still on the board there, dating back to his icon days. What did you learn about his role at Biogen? Yeah, so the gist was kind of looking at Biogen as it turns 40 and examining the weird state it finds itself in now where no one is particularly excited about its near-term future. It's crossing its fingers for an Alzheimer's disease drug that Wall Street thinks is basically a 50-50 shot at succeeding, and its banner multiple sclerosis business is getting old and they can't raise prices forever. And one thing that was interesting talking to people um, who'd work there or investors and analysts is everybody traces it back to that original activist attack by Carl Icahn that led to Denner taking a board seat. They wanted Biogen to pare itself down and stop wasting money in order to sell itself. When that sale didn't happen, people kind of viewed the past decade at Biogen as one of like life during wartime. They were behaving as though they were still under an activist attack, which meant maintaining the bottom line and not investing in R&D the way that many people wanted them to. And so you can kind of see a chain of custody where Alex Denner's activist mentality has actually hamstrung Biogen and made it worse than it would have been had they gone the way they had been before. So the thing that struck me, Damien, when I read your Biogen story is that, you know, this is a company that's kind of stuck in a little bit of a rut. Uh, they're very conservative and they seem like they'd be a, an ideal candidate for an activist investor campaign these days, yet they have an activist investor on their board right now. That is a little bit ironic. And zooming out, Biogen isn't the only large cap biotech company facing this sort of existential crisis as it ages. Amgen is in a similar boat and has been the subject of activist agitation in the past. Alexion, same story, also activists involved. Allergan is sort of a mess right now and there are people agitating for things to change there. So it's not impossible that we see a whole wave of activism as people look at these aging companies and take an Alex Denner position. I think that certainly plays in with the theme we've been talking about the last few weeks on this podcast, the uh, melees that we've been seeing among large cap bios. I do think it's important to keep in mind, though, that biotech companies are in a very different boat than some of the other businesses that we've seen targeted by activist investors in the past. You know, this is not an airline. This is not a consumer goods company where it's all about management. Sometimes the complexities of biology can get in the way of plans of even the most savvy activist investor. Bill Gates is taking on the quest to develop a universal flu vaccine. 
He was in Boston recently to announce $12 million in seed money to boost that endeavor. And while he was in town, he sat down with Stats' Helen Branswell. We think a universal flu vaccine would not only eliminate the pandemic risk, but would have significant health benefits. Before we get into what Bill talked about, Helen, tell us about the concept of the universal flu vaccine. You would have a vaccine that could protect against all the human strains, regardless of how they mutate, and all the strains that are in nature, in wild ducks or pigs or uh, poultry, that have a potential of becoming a pandemic, uh, causing a pandemic. So you could get one shot, in theory, that would protect you against all existing and future flu vaccines, and it would last for a longer period of time. And Helen, you've reported that there's kind of a rule of thumb that it costs about a billion dollars to develop a new vaccine. But a universal flu vaccine would be even harder. And there's thoughts that that estimate may be too low. So what's so much harder about developing a universal flu vaccine compared to your run-of-the-mill flu vaccine? You know how flu viruses, influenza A viruses, have names that have H something and N something? There are... 198 combinations of those. And so you're essentially trying to build a vaccine that would protect against all of those potential flu viruses, as well as flu B viruses, and there are two strains of those. So it's quite a big task. So we have this billion dollar cost estimate for vaccines, and then we have Bill Gates coming to town and talking about $12 million in seed money. Um, is that really enough to move the needle? It's not a huge amount of money. It's gonna, as we've said, it's gonna take quite a bit of money to, to develop a, a universal flu vaccine. And he's talking about a funding round of 12 million. Nobody who is selected is gonna get $12 million. The maximum they could get is $2 million over two years, and they might get less than that. The awards will be between 250000 and $2 million spaced out over two years. So this is really seed money with a small s. And Gates's plan aims to move would-be candidates into human testing by 2021. Does that sound realistic to you based on your reporting on other efforts to develop vaccines? Well, it's really fast. I mean, one of the things that I didn't write about, but that is kind of interesting is in their target product profile, which is essentially saying, we want a vaccine that does X. They're saying they want a vaccine that can be used in infants as young as six weeks old. Currently, flu vaccine isn't given below the age of six month, months. I'm not even sure there's much good data on what giving a flu shot that early in life would do, like whether a child would even mount an immune response. So they're really trying to change the dynamics of, of flu vaccinology in a very, very short period of time. That's, that's a big ask. So Helen, President Trump and FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb both also came up in what Gates is trying to do with the universal flu vaccine. Uh, the executive producer of this podcast, Rick Burke, was there during your interview with Gates. Let's listen to how that played out. Was him. it one-on-one -on -one with you two, or did he have any cabinet members? Or uh, In the last one, it's just me and him and two people who came in with me. Uh, he got Scott on the phone for, for 
period of it. And what did he ask Scott? Like, should we? Hey, hey Gates says there's a universal <laughs> flu vaccine. Is that crazy? And what did Scott, Scott say? Uh, I'm not an expert on that, but yeah, I hear there's some good stuff going on. I'll have to look into it. Uh, Scott was perfect. So Helen, you talked with Gates about more than just the universal flu vaccine. And the part of your interview that's gotten the most play is the part where Gates may or may not have gotten a job offer from President Trump. Let's hear how Gates recounted the incident. You know, I mentioned, hey, maybe we should have a science advisor. Um, but what did he uh, say to that? I said, did I want to be the science advisor? <laughs> uh, and, um, but and you said? No, that's not a good use of my time. <laughs> Even he didn't know if it was serious. Like, he wasn't sure what the answer would have been if he'd said yes. If, but uh, he wasn't interested, so he didn't put it to the test. Thanks, Helen, for joining us. Thanks for having me. There are certain badges that a podcast needs to acquire in order to become truly legit. Uh, You know, one of those is talking about true crime and serial killers. The other is being sponsored by Blue Apron, which hasn't happened to us yet. But back to the subject at hand, let's talk about the Golden State killer case and its implications for genetic privacy. So unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably at least aware that consumer genealogy and serial killer have been in headlines together lately. There's been a lot of news in the past week about the method used to catch the man suspected of being one of California's most notorious serial killers. So let's recap everything that we know so far in the order that it all happened. So in the late 1970s and early 1980s, California was terrorized by a series of rapes and murders. Uh, Investigators concluded that the crimes were committed by the same perpetrator who they suspected might have a law enforcement or a military background, but they never identified the guy and he became known as the Golden State Killer. So investigators made little progress for literally decades. And then they had an idea to try using consumer genealogy sites, which map out the family trees of users who send in their spit or other genetic data to track down the killer through his distant relatives. Last year, investigators subpoenaed one of the leading commercial sites, it's called Family Tree DNA, to give up the identity of one of its customers. That ended up being a false lead. The guy they identified that way was, in fact, in a nursing home and killed no one. Investigators didn't need a court order or cooperation at all for the method that led to the breakthrough. They created a fake profile and a pseudonym on the free open source site GED Match, which is meant for researchers and amateur family genealogists. They uploaded the data from a DNA sample that had been recovered from one of the crime scenes. And then they used GED Match's database to find the killer's great-great-great-grandparents who lived in the early 1800s, and then piece by piece and branch by branch, they created about 25 family trees. And that eventually led them to the doorstep of 72-year-old former cop Joseph James D'Angelo, who was arrested last week. And the saga's not over. The LA Times and other news outlets are suing for court records. If they win, uh, we'll hopefully get more answers to some of the open questions about the methods that investigators used. There will also presumably be uh, a court trial um, for D'Angelo in which we might get a better sense as well of how this all went down. So we've kind of outlined what's happened uh, with the Golden State Killer case. What What does this say for future cold cases? So I think it's important to think about the fact that this method that was used here, you couldn't have done this five, 10 years ago. 
This method only became possible in the last few years as the consumer genealogy industry has just really taken off. Uh, the number of people in these databases had to reach a certain threshold for this kind of work to be possible. Um, but I think that detectives all over the country have got to be taking notes on what was done here. Uh, presumably this could lead to uh, similar breakthroughs in a whole host of other cold cases. So a lot of the concern about the rise of companies like 23andMe has been consumer genetic privacy. Does this open up a new basically source of anxiety for potential customers or for the executives of these companies trying to sell their services? So I thought when the story broke, it looked pretty concerning for companies like 23andMe. But as the details became more apparent, I would almost say their privacy case got strengthened. Um, you know, 23andMe has gotten a number of requests um, from law enforcement for cooperation in investigations, but they have not complied with any of them. And I think the fact that the breakthrough came with a free open source site is telling because part of what you're paying for when you send your $100 to 23andMe is the privacy that that entails. So I, I sort of have a feel like I have a personal connection to the story because I have this Ancestry.com uh, test on my desk that I got for Christmas and I haven't yet turned it in. And so I'm wondering if I do that, am I potentially going to... Send your great-great-grandchild into the arms of the LAPD? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, but seriously, I mean, should someone like me or anyone who has one of these tests sitting on their desk, uh, should they be worried about privacy? Yeah, I think Ancestry is a telling case because they did in the past, it was 2014, comply with a court order uh, to reveal the identity of one of their customers. Uh, that was part of a criminal investigation and while it didn't ultimately solve the case, I think it raised a lot of concerns about how uh, this information being submitted to a commercial site could be used. And it also raises the concern about potentially innocent people being accused of crimes that they didn't commit. So Rebecca, what you're saying is, is that I should be reading those end user agreements that we all blindly check off. It's probably a good idea. We've talked a lot about these privacy concerns, but I think there's an argument on the other side that's worth thinking about, uh, which is, you know, this breakthrough is a pretty important one. You know, we identified a suspected serial killer, and I think that brings a lot of benefits for, uh, for public safety. Uh, there's a question, right, that maybe we should agree to having our privacy violated if it's going to take serial killers off the streets. Maybe, but the outcome of virtually every science fiction movie I've ever seen suggests that could go terribly awry. We all remember Minority Report. Positive for Howard Marks. Mr. Marks, by mandate of the District of Columbia Pre-Crime Division, I'm placing you under arrest for the future murder of Sarah Marks and Donald Dubin. It was take place today, April 22nd. It's 0800 hours, four minutes. No, I didn't do anything. And that does it for this week's episode of The Read Out Loud. A big thank you to Hyacinth Empanado and Matthew Orr, who produced this week's episode. Jeff Delvisio is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear in the future. Ask us questions or just rant about how horribly wrong we are. And you can do that by sending an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback, so thank you. Bye. <laughs>